Today we continue looking at the third chapter of Revelation, looking at the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, talking about the issue that the Lord raises in this particular letter concerning the key of David concerning authority and rule within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, I know sermons that are based upon biblical church government are not likely to fill the church with masses of people waiting with bated breath to learn how Christ governs his church. If we were to do a whole series of, say, a month or two months worth of lectures on church government, we probably wouldn't have too many more people than we presently have because it is not, in most people's minds, a very important subject. But it is extremely important to the living God, the whole issue of the way in which his church is governed and ruled. This general lack of interest on the part of most Christians no doubt underscores the reason why biblical church government is one of the forgotten marks of a true visible church as to its rightful constitution. One of the true marks of a visible church. For example, we find in the Scottish Confession of Faith of 1560 the following three marks of a truly constituted church. Number one, the true preaching of the Word of God. That is, a faithful confession of doctrinal truth. Number two, the right administration of the sacraments. That is, worship rightly regulated by the Word of God. And third, ecclesiastical discipline uprightly ministered, that is, church government, administered according to Christ's authoritative Word. This particular phrase comes from the Scottish Confession of Faith. Wheresoever then these former notes, that is the three marks of the church that I just mentioned, wherever then these former notes are seen and of any time continue, be the number of people never so few, about two or three, there without, without all doubt is the true Kirk or church of Christ. Whether there are only two or three, if that is what identifies them, those marks of the true church, there, the Confession of Faith of 1560 says, is the true Kirk of Christ. As we noted in our previous sermon, Since Presbyterianism is the only form of church government authorized by the Lord Jesus Christ, all other forms of church government are of mere human innovation. 
That includes the majority rules church government of congregationalism or the bishop rules church government of Catholicism and Anglicanism. Contrary to these unbiblical forms of church government, Christ as head of his church rules by his word and by his spirit through qualified ordained elders or presbyters. As we turn to our text from God's word, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, we will not finish our uh, letter today. However, we're going to focus our attention, verses 7 through 9 today. Let us note the general theme again communicated by Christ to the angel or elders of the church of Philadelphia. That theme is this. Christ, as head of the church, promises to preserve this small church in Philadelphia by means of faithful church government, which is simply biblical Presbyterianism. Our first main point, what is the historical context behind this letter that is addressed to the Church of Philadelphia? What is the historical context behind what Christ says? Well, the Church of Philadelphia appears to have recently passed through a severe time of trial and persecution from those who called themselves Jews. This is similar to the trials of the church of Smyrna. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you will find there as well that a faithful church is persecuted by the synagogue of Satan. By those who call themselves Jews, but who lie. The persecution leveled against the church in Philadelphia by the Jewish synagogue seems to have been both of a physical nature as well as that of a spiritual nature. We'll focus more attention upon the persecution that they endured, but I believe when we read that they have little, a little strength, it has to do with the fact that they had undergone such persecution from the synagogue of the Jews. But looking at the spiritual nature of this persecution for a moment, as we shall see, it appears that the Jews were undermining The deity and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were attacking salvation by grace, just as they always did in the life of Christ and in the life of the apostles, saying that they could save themselves by their own good works. When we find the apostle declaring that no man can be justified before God on the basis of anything that he can offer to God, not even that which is most holy or his most righteous effort, 
will not gain him acceptance before a holy God. Only that which Jesus Christ has purchased for him. Only the righteousness of Christ is suitable and acceptable in the eyes of God to receive any man. And so faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the righteous one, as the holy one, as the substitute for man's sin, this is the basis upon which God justifies and accepts us into his kingdom. And as a result of these two errors, attacking the deity and authority of Christ and faith and salvation through faith in Christ, these Jews of this synagogue were proclaiming for themselves the title of God's true and faithful sons. God's true children. We are the children of God, they proclaimed. There seems to have been an all-out battle for the truth between the large, prosperous synagogue of the Jews and the small, poor church of Jesus Christ in Philadelphia. This was a spiritual combat between the Goliaths of Christless Judaism and the David of Orthodox Christianity. In fact, this spiritual conflict may explain the words of Ignatius, who was the bishop or pastor of Antioch, written to this very church, the Church of Philadelphia, about the year 100 A.D. Ignatius says this, But if anyone interprets Judaism to you, do not listen to him. If they do not speak of Jesus Christ, they are tombstones to me and graves of the dead. Flee then from the evil arts and snares of the prince of this age, lest you be afflicted by his scheming and grow weak in love. And so apparently even at the time that Ignatius wrote, there was this battle going on between the Christians, the church within Philadelphia and the Jews of this synagogue. And so the Lord Jesus Christ writes to encourage this small, poor, yet contending and faithful congregation to hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. The second main point from our text today. What attributes does Christ describe to himself in the inscription of the letter to the angel elders of the church of Philadelphia? In verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, we considered this in great detail a couple weeks ago or a few weeks back. We'll not go into as nearly as much detail, but I do want to summarize the inscription. We find these words, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. 
In contrast to the Jews who denied the divine nature of Christ and even blasphemously charged him with casting out demons by the power of Satan, the Lord identifies himself thus. These things saith he that is holy. Literally, these things saith the Holy One. The Holy One. That is the Holy One of Israel. That is a term and designation of Christ's deity. In Isaiah 48, verses 16 and 17, I think one of the most clear passages to demonstrate our triune God from the Old Testament Isaiah 48, verses 16 and 17. Notice these words. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Who is the speaker? It is the second person of the Trinity. He says that the Lord God hath sent me. He identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel. There we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, clearly revealed. Furthermore, in contrast to the Jews who boast that they are the true and faithful sons of God, the Lord declares concerning himself, these things saith he that is true. Literally, these things saith he that is the true one. That is, Christ is the true and faithful Son of God. They claim to be the sons of God, the children of God. I am the true one, the Lord Jesus says. I am the faithful one. They are liars. They blaspheme the living God. Proverbs 19.27 says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Don't follow those. Don't sit under the ministry. Do not listen to those who will lead you astray. Sit and learn and grow under the ministry of the truth. Jesus says, I am the true and the faithful one. Listen to me, not to them. Finally, in contrast to the Jews who seemed to believe they had the key from God to open the door to the kingdom, to open the door to the kingdom to themselves and to shut the door of the kingdom to the Christians in the church of Philadelphia, the Lord announces these things, saith, He that hath the key of David. 
He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. This is actually a reference back to Isaiah 22.22, where God announces that faithful Eliakim will replace unfaithful Shebna as governor over David's house. Actually, during the reign of Hezekiah. Which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as our faithful governor. The faithful one who rules over his church. Furthermore, I believe it is a picture. By illustrating a very, very important principle. Namely this, that authority to use the key of David is linked to faithfulness. Authority to rule in the house of God is linked and connected to faithfulness, not unfaithfulness. Dear ones, it is Jesus Christ who alone possesses the key to open and close the door to the visible church. It is not the Pope. It is not bishops. It is not the congregation. It is not even the elders that absolutely possess the key of David. It is Christ alone. Christ, we will learn, delegates that authority to faithful elders. But Christ possesses it alone. Which leads us to the next main point from our text. Number three, what has Christ given to the church of Philadelphia in contrast to the synagogue of the Jews? What has Christ bestowed upon the church of Philadelphia? In verse 8, Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Actually, the verse begins, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Quite literally, the Lord declares where it says, I have set The original language says, I have given. I have given before thee an open door. You see, because the key of David belongs to Christ, it is his right and not that of any human being to open the door to his visible church. Though the scribes and the Pharisees of the synagogue boasted, as you will recall, of having the key to admit themselves and others into the kingdom, they had, according to Jesus, in Luke 11.52, actually taken away or renounced the key of knowledge concerning God's truth. And in so doing, they had not only shut the door of the kingdom to others, but they had shut the door of the kingdom to themselves. Let's just look at that for a moment. Luke 11:52 speaks of a key of knowledge. 
Jesus says, by way of condemnation and woe upon the scribes, Pharisees, in this section, he speaks to, uh, specifically, he says lawyers here, but uh, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. These were men who especially should have known the truth concerning God. But Jesus says, woe upon you because you've taken away the key of knowledge from the people. Ye entered not in yourselves and them that were entering in ye hindered. Jesus is saying, ye have removed and taken away. Ye have renounced the key of knowledge of truth to enter into the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus, I believe, comforts this church with these words because they need not fear that they have been shut out of Christ's church regardless of what claims come from the large and prosperous synagogue of the Jews. You remember that, that, again, throughout the New Testament, there are various places where it speaks of people. For example, the blind man who was healed by Jesus was cast out of the synagogue. They were excommunicating people for the truth, for upholding and defending the truth of God. Jesus says, don't worry about what these Jews in the synagogue say. I have opened the door for you, and no man can shut it. You see, Christ has opened the door to them through the key of knowledge of the truth, and no man can shut them out if any man believe in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who clings to the truth of Jesus Christ will not be shut out. Well, since Christ is in heaven, the question might arise, how does he rule with the key of David over his church, which is on earth? Since he does not thunder forth his will by voice, as God spoke from Mount Sinai, how does he govern his church? How does he rule her? Well, first of all, he delegates the exercise of the keys of the kingdom to his ministers and elders to rule on his behalf by his word and spirit. Even as he states to Peter in Matthew 16, 19, you remember there, in Matthew 16:19 that the Lord gives to Peter and Peter representing all those who are ordained to rule in Christ's church who are qualified and set apart to do so Jesus says I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven 
And so the keys of the kingdom have been delegated. Though Christ possesses it absolutely, he delegates the use of those keys to qualified, ordained elders. But to whom are the keys of the kingdom given? The scribes and Pharisees believed that they possessed them and could thereby include themselves as a faithful synagogue and exclude the Church of Philadelphia. All cults in all professing Christian churches today unanimously maintain they possess the keys to rule for Christ by preaching His Word, by serving His sacraments, and by administering His discipline. Find a church that won't say, we don't have the authority to do this. Find a church that says, no, really, Christ has not given us the authority to do what we're doing. All of them, everyone will proclaim the same thing. How will you know who has been given the keys of the kingdom? Because they can't all have been given the keys of the kingdom. Because the keys of the kingdom, as we said, is given on the basis of faithfulness. It's given to faithful elders. Faithful church officers. Faithful to the truth. To say that they all possess the keys of the kingdom is to say that, in effect, there is no truth. Because all of these various churches disagree as to what the truth is. Well, again, you will know who have been given the keys of the kingdom by the marks of the true church, which we mentioned earlier. For Christ does not give his authority to rule to ministers and elders where they do not rule by the word of his truth. For the keys of the kingdom are not given where the key of knowledge is not maintained. Remove the key of the knowledge of truth and there are no keys of the kingdom. Dear ones, it is not the antiquity of a church that determines whether they have the keys. It is not the prosperity of a church that determines whether they have the keys, nor the giftedness of a church, not even the claim of miraculous giftedness, nor the numerical vastness of a church, nor even the unity and oneness of a church that conveys lawful authority to rule on behalf of Jesus Christ. For all of these Reasons that I have just mentioned are reasons that the Church of Rome says that the keys have been entrusted to her. Those are not biblical reasons for claiming that a church and elders possess the keys of the kingdom. Again, I say, It is faithfulness to the truth of Jesus Christ alone in doctrine, in worship, and in government that grants an open door to the ministry of a church to lawfully use the keys of the kingdom.
In 2 Corinthians 3.8, the Apostle Paul, in the context, speaking of authority, in, in chapter 13, I believe, verse 10, he says that authority is given for the purpose of edifying and not destroying. But he also says in verse 8, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. That which is done against the truth, against the key of the knowledge of truth, is that which removes the keys of the kingdom to, to delegate unto the elders of, or the leaders of that church to rule on behalf of Christ with authority, with lawful authority. <clears throat> Therefore, to all churches that claim to have a right to represent Christ by using his keys and yet have fallen away from the truth, their claim to the keys is a false claim, just as the claim of the synagogue of the Jews was a false claim. They did not have the keys to be able to excommunicate to, be, to put out of the synagogue. Christ himself shuts the door to lawfully use his keys if his truth is slandered and not confessed. But he opens wide the door to all those churches to use his keys who confess and testify to his truth in doctrine, worship, and government. For there in that church, where that is practice, will the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd speaking to them in all of the ordinances of Christ. And they will be nourished and they will be fed. We see in John chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the Lord says, The sheep know the voice of the good shepherd. They know the voice of a true shepherd, but they will not follow a stranger. And so, those to whom God has given ears to hear, they know the voice of the living Christ speaking through his ordinances as they gather each Lord's day to worship him. Thus, Christ has not only opened the door to the church of Philadelphia by admitting them into his visible kingdom, but he has also granted to its church officers the open door of lawfully using the keys of the kingdom in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees in the synagogue of the Jews. The last main point is going to probably be the most heavy one. Save the best for last. Fourthly, what two promises does Christ make to the church of Philadelphia which are to be realized here upon the earth? Well, in verse 9, this promise 
Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. And the second promise, which we will not have time to consider today, but we'll look at Lord willing next week, is in verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The sense of this first promise in verse 9 is this. Behold, I am giving to you some out of the synagogue of Satan. I am giving some out of the synagogue of Satan to you. The promise of Christ that we see here seems to be a great irony of his gracious providence. In Isaiah 60, verse 14, these Jews may have taken great pride in this particular verse. These Jews in this synagogue in Philadelphia may have boasted about this particular verse. Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They may have thought all of these Gentiles will God bring to bow before our feet. But again, God has humbled those who are proud and lifted up those who are humble because it is the church of Jesus Christ. They are the people of God as we shall see. And it is contrary to the contrary, it is the Jews who have rejected Christ who will come. In this context, some out of the synagogue of the Jews will come and bow and worship with the believers in this church. But even looking beyond that historical context to that day before before Christ returns, in that time of millennial blessing when the Lord Jesus Christ will call Israel unto himself. And he will bring Israel to acknowledge that God has been faithful and has loved his church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will take some from the synagogue of the Jews just like he did the Apostle Paul And he will humble him. He will break him. He will change their hearts. And will bring them to acknowledge Christ has indeed loved these people. (coughs) 
You see, the Jews claim to be God's people, but Jesus says here in this verse, they are liars. For those are not true Jews who are Jews outwardly by mere birth and by mere circumcision. By merely going through the motions, nor are we Christians by mere birth or mere baptism, but those are truly Jews and truly Christians. Those are truly God's people who have the reality to which circumcision and baptism point. That is cleansing from the guilt of sin by the gracious work of the Spirit and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that those signs are without meaning. That doesn't mean that we can do away with those signs of the covenant. God has given to us those signs of the covenant which we are to use to identify, to set apart His people. Thus, Christians, regardless of their race or nationality, are the true seed of Abraham, according to Galatians 3.29. Christians, regardless of their race or nationality, are the true Israel of God, according to Galatians 6.16. Christians, regardless of their race or nationality, are the true circumcision, according to Philippians 3.3. And so, Jesus says, those who claim to be Jews because they have rejected me are not Jews at all. Notice, however, the strong language Christ uses for these public assemblies of false teachers the synagogue of Satan. Since the word Satan means adversary, this was a synagogue of adversaries to Christ's truth. You remember in Matthew 16.23 when Jesus had spoken with regard to his soon coming death and his sufferings? How Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, Forbid it, Lord, let this never happen. And the Lord said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest of the things of men rather than the things of God. Your mind is upon the teaching and philosophies of men, Peter, rather than the teaching and truth of God. And therefore, in that instance, Peter was an adversary to the truth. Now, a synagogue of adversaries to Christ's truth cannot be a true church, nor can it be invested with authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom. That is, to lawfully preach, to lawfully serve the sacraments, to lawfully administer Christ's government. 
Dear ones, this is a most solemn, yet seldom preached truth in the churches of the 20th century. Where will a Christian go to hear the word of Christ preached? Where will he go to be served the Lord's Supper with people who hold in common the one faith once and for all delivered unto the saints? Where will he go to submit to a church government of which Christ himself approves and has ordained? Dear ones, you cannot ask more important questions than these. Will he go to what he considers to be the best church in his area, though knowing full well they have departed from the truth of Christ? This he can do no more than to go to the best doctor in town, although he knows this doctor to mix poison with the prescriptions that he gives out to his patients. Dear ones, the Belgic Confession of Faith of 1561, one of the standards of the Reformed Church of the Netherlands, makes this acute observation. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God, which is the true church. Since all the sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. It's Article 29. We must be able, dear ones, to recognize churches that promote and defend the truth, that are the pillar and ground of the truth, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. To be able to distinguish them from churches that are adversaries to the truth, that are synagogues of Satan. This is a question, dear ones, of objective truth, not one of mere subjective feelings. I realize we may all have loved ones in such churches, we may have been raised in such churches. We may have been members and even church officers in such churches. We are not, I would qualify, we are not saying that Christians may not be members or church officers in such churches. It is possible that there are Christians that are members and hold office in these churches that are adversaries to the truth. <clears throat> and we are not saying that if a court of such a church, an unlawful church, a false church, a church that is an adversary to the truth of Jesus Christ, we are not saying that if a true decision according to the truth is made by their church court that we cannot rejoice in the truth. We can always rejoice in that truth. 
But we cannot recognize their legitimate authority to rule on behalf of Christ if they are adversaries to the truth because authority is based upon faithfulness to the truth. Authority to rule comes from faithfulness to the truth. And so we are saying, however, once we do understand the truth of Jesus Christ, we cannot continue to sit or even occasionally sit under the preaching to receive the sacraments or in good conscience to submit to the government of a synagogue of adversaries to Christ's truth whether they are wittingly or unwittingly adversaries to the truth. To do so, to do so, beloved, is to give our approval to that church and its ministry and thereby to dishonor the truth of Jesus Christ. To dishonor Christ himself, who is the author of truth who is the author and finisher of our faith. To be able in good conscience to sit under the preaching of a church or to receive their sacraments and not to unite in membership with them is actually divisive and schismatic. Only divisive. If we can sit under their ministry of their preaching, if we can sit and receive the ordinances in that church, then not to be united with them is to be divisive. And furthermore, to sit in that place, dear ones, is to set a stumbling block before others who watch our example and do likewise. How will the church ever come to a knowledge of the truth, to practice pure worship and government, to have faithful constitutions and confessions of the faith, if people who know the truth continue to sit under the ministry of those churches? <clears throat> Dear ones, what Calvin says concerning the Church of Rome may be equally applied to all Protestant churches that have embraced error and forsaken the truth in doctrine, worship, and government. Notice these words. He says, to sum up, I call them churches, speaking of the Church of Rome, I call them churches to the extent that the Lord wonderfully preserves in them a remnant of his people, however woefully dispersed and scattered, and to the extent that some marks of the church remain, especially those marks whose effectiveness neither the devil's wiles nor human depravity can destroy. But on the other hand, because in them those marks have been erased to which we should pay particular regard in this discourse, I say that every one of their congregations and their whole body lacks 
the lawful form of the church. He says earlier that that lawful form is the true and lawful constitution of the church. They lack a lawful constitution based upon the truth. And so because there are believers in the church of Rome, there is a sense in which we can say there is a church. But as they lack the lawful form of a church, they are no church at all. Our confession of faith says they have so degenerated as to become a synagogue of Satan. And that is true not only of the church of Rome, but of all Protestant churches who have likewise partaken of that same poison in Rome and deviated and departed from the truth. confession of faith it speaks of those who are members of the true visible church as being those who profess the true religion together with their children what did our covenanted and reformed forefathers understand the true religion to be that phrase the true religion is the body of truth embodied in our confessional standards, the covenants, the form of government and directory for public worship, subscribed to by the Reformed churches of Scotland, England, Ireland, and as well practiced by all of the Reformed churches at that time. That is the truth. Religion, And to depart from that religion, dear ones, is to put oneself into a category where he is outside of a true ministerial church. Just before I conclude, one objection might come up. Something to this effect. This sounds, Pastor, so very, very harsh. To make those kinds of evaluations and judgments about sincere believers or churches. To speak in those terms. Where is the love and grace of Christ in what you have said today? Dear ones, we need look no further than the ministry of the the prophets in the Old Testament. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself concerning error. The ministry of the apostles who said, let him be anathema, who teaches anything contrary to the gospel which I have proclaimed. Toleration of error, dear ones, is not loving nor gracious. To tolerate error within a church is far from being loving. Is far from showing love for our neighbor. 
If we truly love our neighbor, we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that means his truth. And then we will be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Dear ones, we do pray for the peace and the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. We do long for that day when all of God's people will hold in common one doctrine, one worship, and one government. And there is a day coming before Christ returns when that will be the case. We look forward with great joy to that day. We pray earnestly for that day. We pray that God will use us in some small way where we are today to begin such a wondrous reformation. But dear ones, unity, if it is unity at all, is always based upon the truth. A so-called unity that is not based upon the truth is a lie. That is not unity. That is sin. Toleration of error is sin. And so, dear ones, in conclusion, things are not always as they seem. Christ came as a suffering servant. He was rejected by his own people, spat upon, beaten, and crucified. And yet he was the eternal King of kings and the Lord of glory. Things are not always as they seem. A beggar named Lazarus seemed to be penniless. He begged outside the doors outside the gates of a rich man, year upon year. And yet, he had riches that would not pass away. Things are not always as they seem to be. A poor widow gave one mite as an offering in the temple treasury. And yet, she outgave all those who gave of their abundance, for she gave all that she had. All things are not as they seem. And so likewise, the poor little congregation of Philadelphia seemed to be on the short end of the stick when compared to the immense, successful synagogue of the Jews. But one could not have been more wrong in his evaluation to draw that conclusion for the kingdom of God belonged unto them Jesus says in Luke 12:32 Fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom Don't be afraid little flock God has promised you 
his kingdom. In such matters related to important distinctions between the faithful church and the unfaithful church, especially where our vision is so apt to be clouded by many emotional responses within, we must be ever so careful to apply the wisdom of our Lord when he said, Judge not according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. John 7:24. Judge these matters, dear ones, by the truth of Jesus Christ. We'll continue our study through this text next Lord's Day. Let us stand. Our Father in heaven, we have listened and heard thy Spirit speak to us this day through thy word. O God, we pray that thou would bring thy word to bear a rich harvest in our lives that we would not throw it aside, cast it aside, that we would not allow the birds of the field to eat the word that has been sowed, that we would not allow the, the thorns, the weeds, the cares of this life, our emotional responses to choke out the word which has been proclaimed this day. But God we pray that thy spirit would water that word and cause it, Lord, to, to bear much fruit in our life. O oh Lord God, we thank thee that thou dost not give thy keys on the basis of the size of a congregation. Thou dost not give thy, thy keys to a church on the basis of how old it is, how it can trace its lineage back so far. Thou dost give thy keys, the keys of thy Son, to those who are faithful in the truth. And Lord, we pray that this would humble us as thy people, that we would not exult in ourselves that we would not glory in our own wisdom and knowledge but that we would glory in the grace of the living God who has had mercy upon us we ask our Father to make us more faithful to add to our numbers to give us Lord the desires of our heart to see thy truth acknowledged and proclaimed throughout the world. To see many faithful churches begun, backsliding churches turned from the, their wicked ways. O oh Lord God, 
we do pray that thy mercy would be shown unto thy people. Cause us to persevere and not to give up. To stand firm, knowing that the truth of Jesus Christ cannot fail. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.